Welcome to Women of the Military Podcast, a Girl's Guide to the Military series sponsored by Women Veteran Alliance. This week's episode is all about being an officer in the U.S. military. I'll break down this episode to first talk about what the difference is between being enlisted in the military and being an officer. And then I'll go through the three primary ways that people become officers in the U.S. military. And then lastly, there are also other specific programs for doctors, lawyers, dentists, and other technical career fields. So I will give a brief overview of what those types of programs are. And lastly, I don't want to just talk about what it's like to be an officer from my perspective. I interviewed Allison, who was on the podcast last week, and talked about what it was like to go to basic training. And this week, we're going to talk to her about what it was like to go to officer training school with the Army after she completed basic training. I also did an interview with Air Force ROTC cadet Kiara Williams, and she shared her experience of doing ROTC. And while I I didn't include an academy interview in this episode. Episode 151 is with two cadets from West Point and they shared their experience. It is in the show notes if you would like to find it quickly. And so with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's episode after a word from our sponsors. Thank you to our title sponsor, Women Veteran Alliance. Women Veteran Alliance is the premier national network focused on directly impacting the quality of life of women veterans. They do this successfully through transforming the way the community networks bring people and programs directly together. Women Veteran Alliance provides weekly webinars, conferences, scholarships for veteran businesses, and more. Check out their membership options and learn how you can be involved in connecting with women veterans by heading over to their website at www.womenveteransalliance.org. But besides connecting women veterans, Women Veteran Alliance does so much more. This year, Women Veteran Alliance is hosting a live broadcast in person throughout the U.S. and online. It will be held on September 9th and 10th of 2022. You can head over to www.womenveteransalliance.org to learn more about where in-person locations are and to register. In a world that has become so visually overstimulated, many struggle to stand apart from the crowd. Photography by Trish Algrea-Smith uncovers your unique story and keeps you top of mind in changing times. They provide commercial clients and high-profile individuals in the Washington, D.C. area portraiture, including headshots and group photos, and branding photography that features their products, services, and events. Led by Air Force veteran and military spouse Trish Algrea-Smith, they specialize in providing photographic content for individuals and organizations driven by a strong sense of purpose and desire to inspire people to action. Visit their website at www.soyourlife, that's S-O-Y-O-U-R, L-I-F-E dot com to view their latest work and book a consultation. The main difference between being an officer and being enlisted is largely related to the type of work that you do. Officers are typically managers and the enlisted members are the workers who work under them. As a lieutenant, I was given the opportunity to work in the shops of the Civil Engineering Squadron and I got to do some of the hands-on work with the enlisted members, training me how to do the different skills. But this was just a learning opportunity. My primary duty was to understand how the 
squadron worked. And then I did the higher level management of the enlisted troops in the different shops based on where I was at. So there are certain jobs for officers and certain jobs for enlisted. And even though sometimes the title is the same, the work that the officer and the enlisted member do often are very different. Another difference is that to be an officer, you have to have a four-year degree. And the three main programs to become an officer are through the military academies, the Reserve Officer Training Corps program, and Officer Training School. So we're going to dive a little bit into what those are. And the first one is military academies. And there are five military academies throughout the United States. Some require letters from senators or presidential appointments, and others, like the Coast Guard, do not. I did an interview with Lisa Rylage on Girls Guide to the Military YouTube channel, and so I'll link to it in the show notes that will talk all about the nomination process. If you're considering applying to the Academy, you can learn about the congressional nomination and what things you need to know to apply to an Academy. There's also a great article that Lisa wrote that I'll link to in the show notes that explains the different types of nominations. And in the intro, I mentioned episode 151 with the two West Point cadets. But another great interview to check out is with Claire Gibson. She wrote Beyond the Point, which is a fictional novel based on interviews of women who attended West Point. And I thought it gave a lot of really good detail about what it's like to be a cadet. So it's a book that I highly recommend. And I also listed in the show notes some other episodes with Academy graduates from the Air Force, Naval, and Coast Guard Academy. So you have those as resources as well. Next, we'll move on to ROTC. ROTC is a program that you complete alongside attending college. There are programs for the Air Force, Navy, and Army. And if you're in the Navy program, you can apply for the Marine Corps. Based on what university you attend will likely affect what options you have for ROTC because some colleges do not offer certain branches ROTC programs, but also look and see if there's cross-campus programs that you might be able to attend. If you are in high school, you can apply for a full-ride scholarship that will pay for your tuition and typically includes a monthly stipend along with a book stipend. And one of the great things about ROTC is that you can also join without a scholarship or no contract, and you can try out the program and learn a little bit about the military and see if it's a good fit for you. That's what I did when I joined. I did a year in the program without a scholarship, and I decided at the end of that year that I wanted to compete for a scholarship and I was able to get contracted and start getting my tuition paid for and getting that monthly stipend. And later in the episode, we'll talk to Kiara Williams about her experience in ROTC. And then also in the show notes, I have some of the past guest episodes where they attended ROTC. And we touched upon ROTC in the beginning of their episode, so you can hear a little bit more about their experience of joining the military through ROTC. And the last main way that people join the military as an officer is through officer training school. If you already have your degree completed, it's a really good option to consider. And you can also go from enlisted to officer through the officer training school program. And so it's a great option for people who have their degree and are ready to either cross over or start their military career as an officer. The OTS programs vary by branch. 
One really good example of this is that for the Army, you have to first go to basic training and then you go to officer training school after that. And the Air Force, Navy, Space Force, and Marine Corps do not have that same requirement. So it's important to learn about what requirements are required to get into OTS and then for the training. Allison will share her story of attending OTS after completing basic training later on in this episode. And then I also have episodes in the show notes with people who have gone to officer training school to join the military. And so you can hear their stories. So I said those are the three main ways, but there's still other programs outside of these main programs that can get you into the military as an officer. And so it's important to find out what programs there are for the branch that you're joining. And especially if you're doing something technical, like if you're planning to be a doctor, a lawyer, a dentist, social worker and other career fields that have specialized training, they can start off their military career differently and they have different programs. And sometimes you don't start as a second lieutenant because you are a lawyer. You don't start as a second lieutenant to help make the pay difference. You start at a higher rank. So those programs are important to know about and to make sure you ask your recruiter about them and that you get set up with the right program. And once again, I have had interviews with women who have gone through these specialized programs, so I link to them in the show notes so you can check them out as well. And now that I've given you a short overview on how to become an officer in the military, let's hear Allison and Kiara's story about the programs that they are going through. We're back with Allison, and we last week we talked to her about what it was like to graduate from basic training, and now we're talking to her about what it was like to go through officer candidate school in the Army, and so welcome back. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thank you for having me, Amanda. So let's start with congratulations on graduating and getting through training. And I'm just, it's been so fun to watch your journey because I met you when you were first thinking about joining the military and it's just been fun to talk to you and mentor you. And now I'm like, so proud of you and so excited for you. So I'm so excited. Thank you so much. Right before we started, you said that it was a lot like basic training, but different. So what was it like to go from basic training, take a couple weeks off, and then go to officer candidate school? I think it was actually very beneficial because, you know, the interesting thing about OCS is it's really a huge mix of people from all different kind of walks of the army. There were a lot of We called them prior service or in-service, people who had been on the enlisted side for several years and then were coming back and, you know, joining the dark side or whatever and trying to get their commission. And I think, you know, in some ways that's definitely beneficial because you know the army better and you know the way things work. So sometimes we were all of us college option people who had just joined were kind of deer in headlights, not sure about what exactly to do. But I think in some ways it was an easier adjustment going from, you know, the rigidity of the schedule of basic training to straight into OCS. Because a lot of the prior service or in-service people that I spoke to were always like, oh, it's been a while since I've done the army thing. I don't really know what we're supposed to be doing right now with, you know, doing the army thing. So, yeah, it, it has its benefits to do it either way. But I recommend it to anyone. So. 
How was basic training different than officer candidate school? You said that they were similar in like rigidity and structure, but you also said it was different. So what's the differences that you noticed? So one big difference, personally, I felt more physically challenged here. And I say that, you know, with a grain of salt in that, you know, in basic training, especially the initial couple of phases, you're working out every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. And it's new for a lot of people. But I found that here we were doing, you know, a lot of very similar stuff, but it was a higher physical demand and they expected you to perform at a higher level. So one example is the rucks, you know, in basic training, we did a five, seven and a half and then 10 mile ruck at a very slow pace. And then here we did a six, a nine, and a 12. And each one we got progressively faster until we were doing the army standard, which was something I'd never done before. And then a lot of the physical requirements were graded events. And so you either had to pass or fail. And if you failed, you were given a chance to retry it or you were recycled to the next class. So I think the stakes were a little higher here. I found in basic training, you know, they kind of push you along so that you can get through it. I mean, the the only way to fail basic training is to like give up on yourself. But here, if you don't meet the standard or if you don't complete the exercise the way they want you to, you know, you get recycled. Yeah, it's definitely different where instead of they're just trying to like get you just do the 10 mile ruck and then you're good. Instead, it's like do the you said 12 mile and you do it at the army standard pace, which is not just walking and getting through it. It's moving at a fast clip. Yeah. It's about a 15 minute mile, which, you know, isn't terrible, especially because we didn't have our weapons with us for them, which was different too. Right. I can see how that would be like totally different and that the physical requirements, you have to hit standards. And if you don't, and then you fell the second time, they get recycled and you're like, well, that's not so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Were there other things besides physical requirements that you had to meet the standards? And if you didn't meet them, then you would get recycled? Yeah. So the way it works, especially for active duty, you don't come into OCS with your branch assignment, uh, which is, you know, within the army, it's either infantry, armor, engineering, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of find that out midway through and the way they allocate, you know, the given slots that we have, because, you know, they call up, you know, HRC, and they're like, we have this many candidates graduating, we need officer slots. And they say, okay, well, here's, here's what we got. And you rank what we're given. And you're given your top choice based on order of merit. I think ROTC does something similar. Everything that you do through OCS is graded. So that's the physical events, like the four mile run, is graded on a scale based on how fast you run it. The rucks are just kind of pass or fail, go or no go, whether you complete them to the standard or not. The obstacle courses are graded, you know, out of a percentage. So you get a certain number of points. But the other areas are, there are several written tests that you do. And those grades are factored into your OML ranking. And then in addition, we do like leadership assessments. So every week we rotate through who's you know, platoon leader, platoon sergeant, company commander, XO, and, you know, within our company. So the cadre are kind of more on the background and student leadership is actually running us through, you know, all our activities, getting us where we need to be, all that stuff. And so then you get graded for that as well. And then the other big thing is land nav. We don't shoot, which is another thing that we didn't do, unlike basic training. There's no marksmanship here, but 
we did do land nav again, which was a lot more intense than land nav at basic training. <laughs> so yeah, at the academies and at ROTC, you I think you find out, at least in ROTC, I know you find out your junior year what your career field is going to be, and then you find out your assignment your senior year. And I feel like the academy is on a similar schedule where you find out near the end second half of your time and your training that you find out what you're going to do. And it is based on like your rank, especially like if you're in the Air Force and you want to be a pilot, like having a high rank really makes it easier to get into those career fields. And then there's like engineering. It was for me, it was like, you're an engineer, you're going to be an engineer. It's not really like that competitive. So what career field did you end up getting? And did your rank determine that you got that job? I uh, branched engineering. So I was actually in the top 20% of my class and engineering was my first choice. So I lucked out like that. Um, I think the way it shook out for our class was the top 50% of the class got their first or second choice. And then the other 50% got, you know, maybe their fourth or fifth choice. So not terrible, but, you know, that's kind of how the cookie crumbles, I guess, in that situation. Someone I've talked to who went through OCS talked about there being like a lot of competition among her peers. And she she was going for an Intel spot. And she said that she felt like it caused a lot of animosity between her and the other peers. Did you notice that in the training? Like instead of like basic where everybody's one team and they're trying in this, you're competing against each other, but also supposed to be working together. Yeah, there's definitely some of that. And especially for the Intel slots, I think... You know, there's still kind of high demand and everybody wants them. And I've heard crazy stories about, you know, classes past where people would sabotage others, you know, in so when we run sticks lanes, you know, they would intentionally make the squad leader commit fratricide or something or not listen or things like that. But I don't personally, I didn't encounter any of that in my class. I mean, I think as it got closer to finding out our branches and, you know, it got a little more competitive and just there's more tension. I don't think we were ever like openly like against each other, but the people were a little bit more tense with their interactions. Yeah, well, I think it makes it hard because you are trying to get the career field and it affects your life. It's not like it's something that doesn't matter. And if you want to do something that's very limited and you're competing with someone and like, it's just slight things that make the difference between class rank. So it's like, I think it's a really hard system. I feel like in ROTC, I didn't really feel it, but I also wasn't gunning to be a pilot. And it's a different type of environment because you're not around the people 24 seven. But I think it's interesting how the army does that. And I think the other branches do it that way too because you have to rack and stack people you can't just be like everybody gets the job they want that's not how the military works unfortunately so if someone was thinking about doing ots either someone's fresh out of college or someone who's uh, serving in the military right now and is thinking about crossing over to the dark side what advice would you give them it can either be like just the application process or something that you learn from the training or both well I can, I can do both. Um, the application process, it's lengthy and it's involved. And I think a big part that helped me was having a recruiter who was really keen on it. Because uh, I know that there are recruiters who, well, for the college option who don't want to, you know, do the paperwork for it. And, you know, you can, you can get it done with any recruiter, but like having a recruiter 
who knows all the steps that you need to take and when things need to be done. In that regard, you can just be on top of your stuff. Like they give you a list of everything that you need. And the faster you get it to them, the faster the paperwork gets in and the sooner you get through that process because it's just a lengthy process. I think with in-service and prior service, it's a little bit different because, you know, I, I know someone who's here who's, I think... E8 promotable and did not want to be sent to OCS and was like picked to go to OCS and he's got a best butt up. <laughs> I think there's, you know, talking to your chain of command and figuring out how that works. It's, you know, again, going to be a lengthy process because it's the boards, it's the paperwork, the letters of recommendation, but it's, it's not, it's not impossible. Just like staying on top of your stuff and, you know, being proactive because that's that's the whole thing about i feel like being an officer is being proactive to getting your tasks your missions done anything like that while you're in ocs i think a big thing is making sure you come physically prepared i know that the army like and you know most of the military pushes the physical standard but there's a lot that they ask of you and you know the more especially for women like the more physically prepared you are the better off you're going to do. Because for example, like the four mile run was one of the first events that we did. And there was a handful of females who um, didn't pass the run and they were recycled. And then when they went to their next class, there still wasn't enough time for them to improve their run time enough to make it into that class. And they were actually dismissed from the program. But being for me, like, you know, I passed the time the required time. And I did well for myself. I was four minutes under the minimum time you had to hit. But compared to some of the males who are just like, you know, a little bit faster, unfortunately, they were ranked higher for a longer period of time. Because for a while, it was the run was the biggest portion of your grade on the OML. So just being physically prepared, I think is a big thing. And knowing that that's in the beginning of the training, so you have to be ready. It's not like I can get in shape while I'm there. Yeah, no. <laughs> even the people who got recycled didn't have time to improve their runtime so that they could get... Yeah, a big thing is to come here ready to ready to perform. Yeah. And to know about like what standards are needed of like, it's not just the physical fitness test, which, you know, the army changed a bunch and it's complicated now, but it's not just like the Air Force, it's not just running a mile and a half. You have to do more than that. And it's, it's more complicated and it matters a lot because like you said, it's such a big weight, your overall ranking, especially in the beginning. And so the more you can be prepared, the better. And I loved your advice for like knowing like how long the paperwork process took and like how many steps were involved. So that means if you're thinking about doing it out of college, you can't think you can after you graduate start with the process, but then it's going to take even longer. It's actually something. Would you say to start it like your senior year at the beginning of the year or even earlier than that? So my, my case is a little bit unique because I had to um, get a medical waiver first. So I started total time from when I first spoke to my recruiter to when I joined the army, like was sent off to MEPS and everything was about a year and a half. I think from the time when I got the physical clearance and was able to put in my OCS paperwork, it was about half a year, like six months, because my paperwork went in about May. And then I shipped off to basic training in October. 
So it's not something you start at the end of your college career. It's something you should start looking into it your junior year and making sure that you can get everything done your senior year and just know that it might take a long time. I've gotten emails every once in a while from someone who's like, I really need a job like tomorrow. And I was like, then the military is probably not going to help you because they move at their own speed and it is not warp speed. It is like as slow as possible. It is a lot of hurry up and wait. (laughs) Yeah, you learned that term early from the moment that you go in. So is there anything else from your time, either at basic training or from uh, Officer OCS, that surprised you that you weren't expecting? That's a good question. I think the biggest thing that surprises me is that I hear it a lot, especially from the in-service and prior service, is that the regular army is not like your training. The days are really long in training. And I get a constant reminder, you know, it's not going to be like this once you're at your unit. Things are going to be different when you're at your unit. And I mean, I, I, I'm still not at my unit, so I haven't really seen that. But now I'm in a holdover status waiting to start Bullock. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I have like a weird window of seeing people who are still in cycle at OCS and you know, just seeing the difference between the holdovers and people in cycle. And it's, it's a big, it's a big difference just in how your day to day kind of changes once you're out of the training environment. Yeah. And so I was going to ask what was next, but I think a better question is to talk about, since we were talking about like how long it took to get the paperwork started, it's also taking you a long time to get through the training because basic training was, was it 10 weeks? Yes. OCS in January, right? And right. like you just graduated in April? Yeah. So I, um, my class date started January 10th and my commission was April 1st. So that's a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. OCS is 12 weeks. And yeah, now you have to go to, go to Bullock. Can you tell me what that acronym is? Uh, basic Officer Leadership Course. It's the AIT equivalent of officers. So when we get there, it's going to be, you know, ROTC and West Point and OCS kind of all together now, which will be interesting. But mine's going to be at Fort Leonard Wood, and I'll be there for 19 and a half weeks. So I'm, my, based on my orders, my projected graduation date is uh, November 4th. So I'll have been in the Army a whole year before I finish training. Yeah, that's crazy. I was talking to someone about how hard it is to transition and she's like, I was only in for six years, but it like totally changed me. But then talking to you and like having these interviews every time you like graduate something, I can already see how you're changing as a person as the military goes through the training. And now like, and to think like over a year of training just before you go to your first assignment, like that changes you, especially because those training days, like you said, they're so full of so much that you have to do. Right. Yeah. I'm. It's crazy to think. Uh, I don't. I don't feel different, but maybe I am different. <laughs> oh, I can see just the way that you sit. You're different, and maybe it's because you have your hair up. But I don't know. You just you give off a different. I don't know. A confidence of some sort. I don't know how to explain it, but I can see it. Is there anything that we didn't cover about OCS that you wanted to talk about? Well, I can tell you kind of like what a typical day is once you get through, um, you know, some of the very specific events. A lot of the time is spent in a classroom, actually. So, you know, day starts super early. The brigade, because it's technically an infantry school, I don't know if that's why, but um, they push um, an hour and a half of PT every morning. So we 
you know, are up at the crack of dawn and we finish PT around 6.30 and then, you know, time for personal hygiene and chow and classes go from 8 to 12. There's like an hour lunch break and then 1 to 5 is the end of the day. And then after you finish um, dinner, five to six, you have what they call study time. And, you know, that's time that's typically for yourself to, you know, study anything that you need to study, you know, do your laundry, uh, prep your gear for the next day, catch up with family, uh, read a book. I don't know. A lot of people, once we got later into the course, would, you know, go play soccer or something. I was like, Ugh, I'm exhausted. I don't know how you guys have energy for soccer. But, um, it, it, a lot of it is studying. There's, um, you know, compared to ROTC and West Point, they're trying to fit four years of material into 12 weeks. So, you know, call for fire, um, learning about supply management, learning, you know, leadership techniques and, you know, how to take care of your troops, things like that. But those are like the typical day to day. And then, you know, you spend a week in the field doing land nav. It's a night to day course. So you start at like, three, four in the morning and you go until the sun comes up. Uh, but they are changing it now. So I think now it's going to be a day course and then a completely night course. Yeah, and that's the other thing. OCS is undergoing a lot of new changes. They're bringing back a lot of old stuff that they kind of took away. Things like they're going to require males to shave their heads uh, when they come here, kind of similar to basic training. Um, they still have the ascots and everything. You wear an ascot based on what phase you're in in the cycles. Yeah, but that's kind of like rough sketch. <laughs> yeah, I think that's good to talk about. And I was like, what are they learning? And I was like, oh, yeah, I did do four years of ROTC. And then you have to learn all that stuff. And it makes sense that, like, you have to learn all that military stuff. And, I mean, just learning about the Army and learning about their tactics, learning about an op order and how it works and all those things. But I think... It's really interesting to hear about how intense it was, but also how like different than I expected. It was like, oh, yeah, a classroom. That makes a lot of sense. But I didn't really think about it. And you also I emailed you while you were still in training. You emailed me back. Did you did you have phones in that evening time where you had your free time? Yeah. So you're not really allowed to have your phone on you during the duty day. This is going to kind of sound annoying, but it's company dependent. So the company I was in allowed us to have their, our phones at the end of the duty day. Some companies only allow you to have it after like eight o'clock or seven o'clock. But yeah, it just depends. But you're usually allowed to have your phone. And then it's very similar in basic where you are granted um, privileges as you phase through each phase. Um, when you're in black phase... You're restricted to the footprint. So, you know, just where we work and train and eat and whatever. And then when you go to blue phase, you're allowed to go on post and only on the weekends for us. There are some policies where you could do it during the weekday, but that was not for us. And then on the weekends in white phase, you're allowed to go off post. So things like that. But again, it's company dependent on exactly what freedoms and privileges they want to give you and when. You're not allowed to drink caffeine either while we're here. Until you get to, I think, white phase, which is helpful for the history test. The history test is another big thing. That was brutal. It's, it's like, what, 200 plus years of American military history in 10 days and your eyes are just like, oh my god. <laughs> and another thing we're not allowed to have, oh, was the short order line and the defect. You're not allowed to eat that. The first phase. After that, I think it's allowed. But again, it's company dependent. 
Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of things that are standardized, and then there's a lot of things that are either changing or your company gets to make the ruling on. But it's, it is interesting that you get to communicate with your phone to the outside world because... Yeah, that was that was a big thing for me. Personally, that was the hardest part of basic training was, you know, not having access to my support system. But now, you know, at the end of the, at the end of a hard day, I can be like, hey, like, what's up? And, you know, just call my parents or my sister or something. And yeah, it, it made it much more manageable, especially like when it was, you know, pretty stressful or hectic or whatever. So you're done with training and now you're waiting, you're in this limbo phase of waiting for the next training to start. What are you most excited about um, Bullet for? And, and I guess in November, we'll have to do another interview. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. For Engineer Bullock, I'm excited because I am a civil engineer, so it should be a little more of my wheelhouse in theory. I mean, bridges. I get to learn a lot of cool new skills, such as like demolition stuff. Because in the Army, the engineer branch has kind of like three main areas, vertical, horizontal, and then combat. So I'm excited to, you know, explore those and see which one I like. I don't have a duty assignment yet. I think for engineers, they don't give it to you until you're halfway through Bullock. And I think that's, you know, because it can be so niche depending on which three you end up with. But they want you to be able to just drop into any type of engineering unit and, you know, provide leadership. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited to do new stuff. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch your career unfold. And I'm so glad that we connected and we're able to do this interview and the last interview. And so thank you so much for sharing your experience with the audience. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the show, Kiara. I'm so excited to have you here. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Like I told you before we started this interview, I've been trying to find someone who's in ROTC to do this interview for a long time. So I'm so excited that your mom posted a picture on Facebook and that I was able to connect with you. Yes, I am too. It was a pleasant surprise to hear from you and to even see that post. <laughs> so let's talk a little about what branch of ROTC you're doing and then your journey to becoming an ROTC cadet. Sure. So... I'm a part of the um, Air Force Reserve Officer Training Corps at um, Charleston Southern University at Detachment 772. I actually started my journey for becoming a cadet in high school. I did JROTC um, when I was in high school, which was in Alaska, and it was pretty cool and fun. Um, I was quite busy while I was in high school, so I didn't really get the opportunity to lead from the front as much as I would like to. So I took on the opportunity to do Air Force ROTC um, when I got into college. And I tried to get the scholarship while I was in high school, but my P2 score was very low. But I was grateful for the opportunity to try again um, my freshman year, my sophomore year. Due to funding, I didn't receive the scholarship my freshman year, but thankfully my sophomore year I did receive it. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about ROTC is that you can try it without being committed to the militaries. Yeah, so you don't have to have a scholarship if you already are in college and you want to join the military and you're like, oh, I can see if my school has ROTC and then you can join. I joined my sophomore year of college and then I got a scholarship at the end of my sophomore year and beginning of my junior year. And it was great to try it out and figure out if I really liked it. And while the four-year scholarship that you can get out of high school is, it's great, but it's also really competitive, like you just said. It is. It's very competitive. 
So since you applied for the scholarship, can you talk a little bit about what was required for that scholarship and what that process was like? Sure. So the process varies um, quite a bit, but the one that I applied for was based off of my PT score, which needed to be around a 90 to be competitive. And it was also based on my GPA. I believe it needed to be above a 3.5. I had a 3.7, I believe, when I applied. And I had a 94 for my PT test. And then your commander's ranking is another big portion of it as well. And your DOPMERP, you needed to be medically um, cleared for that as well. And I've also heard through varying um, experiences that they may consider your Air Force officer qualifying test score as well. But the biggest one is your GPA and your class ranking and your PT score. Is this the program just specifically for JROTC cadets or is like, where's the class ranking come from? Is it from JROTC or from something else? It's from ROTC. That one, if you're receiving it within ROTC, I know they consider your SAT scores or your ACT scores in place of their Air Force officer qualifying tests. And I don't think you would have a class ranking. It may be a letter of recommendation in place of that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. My husband got a scholarship for ROTC in high school. Wow. I didn't know how special he was until just now. (laughs) Yes, you got a keeper. (laughs) So you didn't get the scholarship, but you decided I'm going to go to school and I'm going to try ROTC and try and get a scholarship. So what was the process of joining ROTC like as a freshman? And you're a military kid, so you kind of knew about the military. Yes, I did. And um, I'm so grateful for my experience, too, because I didn't know where I wanted to go to college at all. But my aunt, she is she was previously the ROTC instructor at the school that I'm at now. So she told me about the program. And I think she did more behind the scenes because I only think I really remember is like saying I want to do it and selecting it as my um, minor because um, I get an aerospace minor for doing ROTC. So it's more than just an extracurricular. And that's the only thing I really remember was that in a couple um, sessions with paperwork and things like that. And if you do JROTC, there's a certificate I think you can show because you can either waive your first year of ROTC because you've already experienced it through JROTC, or you can opt out of that waiver and do the full four years. So I've had um, friends that did three years because they already did JROTC. That makes sense. I I don't think I really want to opt out of that freshman year because you get connected with the other cadets in your unit and maybe I'm weird, but I thought ROTC was so much fun that I I wouldn't want to miss out on that. Exactly. And when you think about it, um, in between your sophomore and junior year, you typically go to field training. So you miss out on the year of training and getting that class that commander's ranking as well because you're competing with those that already went have been in the program for a year. There's some pros and cons to it. Yeah, that's so true. You get a minor in aerospace studies, which I got too. And then when you graduate, in a, you're at the end of your junior year, starting yes. your senior year. So you have one more year and, and then you commission and you go wherever the military tells you. Yes. yes. In a sense, I want to be an oral surgeon. So um, I may have a couple more years of schooling left, but hopefully that will be my um, final final step for commissioning. So I feel like we started, we talked about like your first two years and your prepping, and then you mentioned field training. So what exactly is field training like and what was your experience? Field training is sort of like um, BMT or basic military training just for ROTC. But instead of a two-month course, you go through two weeks 
And with COVID and everything, ours was at Camp Shelby in Mississippi, and um, they transitioned back to Maxwell Air Force Base this summer. And the experience was uh, quite interesting for me. Um, After my FTP semester, I got selected, thankfully, and I went in during the 4th of July week. So a week before that, then during 4th of July. And during that time frame, they had a small percentage of people that they were accepting. So I started out with a flight of 17 people from my class. I believe only six originally were accepted out of the 17. And then they had a supplemental board. And so they accepted um, four others. So we ended up having 10 within my current flight. And for me, it was more of a mental a mental game because you spend those two years really learning how to be a military leader. And then your time at field training is more of an evaluation of how how much you've prepared, really. So sometimes it's, I think the first two days, it's like about warrior knowledge and your interviews and first impressions. And then after that, I apologize for the background noise. I'm in the hallway of my dorm. And then after that, you go into more of a ROM, which is restriction of movement because of COVID. So um, I had to get a COVID vaccine initially, but others opted out of it. So we still had to spend a week like with the restriction of movement. So we only went outside to do some marching and eating and that was it. But of course, there was still quite a bit of yelling, (laughs) but I got used to it. And then our final week was basically centered around mission scenarios and seeing how well you would lead in pressure situations. And you were done. Yeah, it's so crazy because when I went, it was four weeks long and I'm like, it was only two weeks. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was really only one real week of like full fledged scheduled outside and out in the open. Everything else was Zoom academic sessions. <laughs> That's so crazy. Yeah, it's changed so much. I mean, partly COVID, but also it sounds like the program has changed a lot because it was four weeks and there wasn't any, there was a few like classroom briefings, but most of the time we were running around getting yelled at and loving slash hating. <laughs> Did you have to wear a uniform as well, your blues? Yeah, we were, we wore blues and ABUs. We must have wore both. Because of COVID as well, we didn't have an ORI with our blues. So we only wore OCPs in our PTGs. That's so crazy. I just can't believe how much it's changed because it's changed a lot. Yes. And the summer that I went was when the Air Force, now the Army, and the Navy. But that was the year that we could wear ponytails. Yeah. And so I was in the ROTC program when that switch happened and found out about it during that summer and I had like chopped my hair off so that I could get through the training. You still had to wear an bun during like the duty day, but you could PT with a ponytail and now you can wear a braid and a ponytail. Ponytail, All of it. Yep. Yeah. So it's kind of, I mean, there's been so many changes through the military and like when I first came back, I told all the younger cadets who were females that because I was the only a female in my class and I said we can wear our hair in ponytails and I was so excited and we all showed up to PT and we had ponytails and the leadership was like what are you guys doing and I was like they changed the reg and they're like no they didn't I was like yes they did and they told us we had to wear our hair in a bun and then they went and checked the reg and they found out I was right <laughs> wow sometimes you have to take those risks I was just so excited. I was like, I can wear my hair in ponytail. (laughs) The small things, but running with a bun is not fun. I'm sure. I'm sure. So what do you think the biggest takeaway that you learned about yourself during field training was? I would say it was like being able to control my emotions. There was a lot of times when I was there that I took things personal when it came down to people in my flight. 
because everyone was trying to show that they were the best of the best. And so um, whenever I would try to say things or speak up, sometimes it wasn't accepted or I, I personally felt like I wasn't doing my best. And so I at times I would my emotions would be overwhelmed through either crying or I would just go completely silent. And so I learned to not take things personal. I think it was the biggest thing and to recognize that I will make mistakes. Before going to field training, I was a serious perfectionist. But after that, I was just like, we just have to go with the flow and not take things as seriously as I initially did. I'm still grateful for those times. And I think I came out a better person because of it. Yeah, it sounds like you had two really good lessons that you learned just about how sometimes we have to like pay attention to our emotions and check them and then perfectionism, which is something I still struggle with. And and I never thought about like field training does teach you you can't be perfect because you're going to make a mistake. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the biggest one as well was 341s. Uh, for those who don't know, it's just kind of like a, a way to signify that you've made a mistake. It's like a it's like a piece of paper that you give to them and they sign off on it. And I remember when we were doing our laundry, it was like the last day, there was a huge pile of all of our 341s that so aren't even documented. So at first I remember like, I just don't want anything pulled. And so I would be so nervous, but you have to realize that it it's just those little things that you can't take too seriously because at the end of the day, they're just thrown away. You have to just forget and move on. Yeah, it's such a great lesson. So your first two years, you're preparing to go to field training. And then the second two years, at least this was my experience. You could tell me if it changed. Uh-huh. But your junior and senior year, you're like the leadership and you set up the leadership labs and you help train the freshmen and sophomores who are preparing to go to field training. So what was that shift like after you came back from field training and you were a junior and you were taking care of the younger cadets and helping them with their training? It was basically the same process. Um, so GMC are the freshmen and sophomores, which is the general military course. And then now I'm a POC, which is professional officer course. And I am actually a deputy flight commander for the freshmen. And it's like a switch completely. It was like a big change between learning about everything and teaching. And I feel like just more responsibility quickly ramped up as soon as I was done. Being the one that's in charge of like creating the plans for them. And it just gives you a new insight and perspective on it. At first, you're just like, yeah, I just had to show up. But now we have to show up and show out. It's a it's a big difference. And I feel like as I'm transitioning into my senior year, it's just getting <laughs> ramped up even more. And you mentioned that you wanted to be an oral surgeon. Do you know your career field yet? Or when do you find that out? So I selected my AFSCs this past March during my spring break. Um, my top one is chemical biologist, just in case I do not get accepted into dental school. But if that is the case, um, I go on another supplemental board, um, just like those who want to be pilots, they go on a board and things like that. So that will just transition my AFSC to a different, like I, either is a deferral of active duty or I'll be on active duty as a first, a second lieutenant during dental school. Interesting. When, when should you find out? Did you say that? And I missed it. Sorry, um, we find out um, this upcoming fall and we find out our bases um, that um, following spring. If I were to continue into the regular process, but if not, then it'll just be wherever I go to dental school. Okay. I did an interview with the dentist who is in oh, the cool. Navy. And so I'll have to, I'll look it up when we're done with it. Yes, that'd be awesome. But she talked about like the different tracks to becoming a, de- a dentist. And I think 
it's great that you're talking about like you're doing ROTC and you want to become a dentist and you still have that option and you, you have that option, but then you also have a backup option if that doesn't work out. So it's kind of a great program. It is. So you'll find out your, so you guys just did all the job stuff and then you'll find out in the fall, then you'll put in the bases based on your career field. And then you'll find out in the spring where you're moving, if you're moving or you're going to school and then you commission. So it's crazy. Yeah. So what do you feel like in the last three years, how has your life changed being an ROTC? It's, it's changed so much. It really has. Um, I think I've learned a lot about discipline. Each semester, I've had to take at least eight classes. So learning how to have time management and to just be on top of things, it's at first it was very difficult for me. Um, I was having a hard time. I just like showing up on time and still like being attentive and being in the moment. And over time, I've learned to like just take a little bit of time each day to focus on the things that matter and to have a good balance. I believe my sophomore year, all I did was school and ROTC back and forth, but I didn't have much time for myself. And um, this past, my junior year, I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned to take care of myself and to value my worth. And it's just those little things, whether that's going to Starbucks once a week that like those things that like make my day and just to just treat myself because I'm working hard and it's going to pay off in the end. That's so true. Yeah. ROTC is a really big commitment. And someone recently told you have really good time management. And I was like, uh, well, I guess now that you talk about it, like in college, I had to do all the ROTC stuff and go to school and, and I worked part time. So I was really busy I took five years, so. That's so awesome. You did it. That's the main thing. Oh, it was it was a lot going on and a lot of work to happen. And it does make you be disciplined and get your stuff done. Because there were a lot of cadets who started with me who didn't end up commissioning because it is just so challenging and there are so many requirements to make it all happen. I started off with like, I think about 17 cadets in my freshman fall semester flight. And there's only me and one other person that's been with me since day one. And it's just constantly changing. You never know who's going to be with you in the end, even up to your senior year. Yeah, because you have a final medical physical. And my senior year, one of the cadets didn't pass the medical physical and he ended up not commissioning. Wow. And it wasn't anything his fault. It was... You can't do anything about it. Yeah. And I did an interview with a cadet who found out that she was medically disqualified um, after her freshman year of ROTC. And so medical disqualifications, there's so many different things that can prevent you from being in the military. Yes, it's crazy. So I want to end the interview with what advice would you give to someone who is thinking about doing ROTC? It could either be a high school student or someone who's in college right now. I ultimately would encourage you to go for it. It's not going to have much of a harm on you for doing it, for saying you tried it. I just, I would highly encourage you just to go out there um, with your best foot forward, to go out there confidently, knowing that you are here for a reason and just be sure of yourself and know that you got this. I'm rooting for you, even from all the way in Charleston. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I really have enjoyed getting to know you and to hear about your story. And I'm really excited for about your future. And we'll have to do a follow-up interview once you go active duty and commission. Likewise. Thank you, Miss Amanda.
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. I really hope that it helped you in your journey to the military. And if you want to learn more about joining the military, please check out my new book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service. And I'll have a link so you can pre-order in the show notes. And I also want to give another shout out to our sponsors for the series, Women Veteran Alliance, Jay Volbrecht Consulting, Garrett Sorensen with Markham Wealth, Photography by Trish Algrea-Smith, Serve Like Her, and Nomadies Collections. You can learn more about our sponsors at the Girl's Guide to the Military landing page, which I have linked to in the show notes where you can also find every episode from the series. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll come back next week.